Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. It's time to go back to school. The Imperial Gunnery School, that is. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show, it's GJ with the promised second part of our look at the Imperial Gunpowder Arsenal and today we are bringing out the big guns. But before we do that, let's talk some news and hobby. Oh, I don't really need a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing and it was everything that I thought it could be. I haven't had much time for hobby this past week. That's mainly due to well, other life activities taking up my evenings. I, I did find some time to sit down and paint some ogres. Uh, the same ogre command group and butcher that I have been working on. And that I probably mentioned on the show at some point in the past. And I have also started to work on my beastman army that I am going to do for the Call of the Crown challenge that I'm organizing myself. I have had some models in the stripper fluids, um, took them out, cleaned them up, put some new models in. I'm still a little bit on the fence as to which kind of stripper fluid to use. Uh, I, I have used um, isopropanol, I have used a cleaning fluid uh, that's available in the Netherlands called uh, Dusty. Um, the other day when I was at Emil's house, he said, well, you just use the uh, more expensive bio strip. It works like a charm and you will, uh, uh, you, you will be able to reuse it uh, all the time. So I, I haven't given that a chance yet, but I uh, probably should at some point in the future. Because these plastic miniatures that I am stripping, they don't usually get all clean. They, um, especially the base coat will remain on, and sometimes it's hard scrubbing and some some prying with like a a needle tool, a needle sculpting tool, to get the paint globs out of the uh, crevices, especially in with stuff like beastmen who are furry all over or at least over most parts of their body it's really difficult to get the paint out of there with just uh, uh, a toothbrush or an electric toothbrush which is what I use to clean them. Uh, other than that I have been able to get a game in uh, this time with my buddy Roland we played a game of fifth edition and it was, this was mostly in preparation of the campaign I am organizing for the Dutch Oldhammer event in October. So if you live in the Netherlands or maybe in Belgium or Germany and you don't have anything to do yet, it's going to be in the last weekend of October on that Saturday in a town near the German border. Um, you are most welcome to join us. There will be many other events and uh, one of them is going to be the 5th edition campaign that I am running we have also some news to report because as of today I put up a new painting challenge on the um, on the Wargames Orchard Facebook group. Uh, when this episode releases the month of August will be almost over and that also means 
that the too hot to handle paint challenge is drawing to a close. I have seen some entries already. I know that uh, uh, someone, I believe it was Emil, is working on a halfling hot pot. Uh, though I have not seen any finished pictures of that as of yet. I also uh, saw, let me check here real quick on Facebook. Well, that's of course my, my own entry, but I don't want to shout out myself too much uh, because I hate doing that, of a uh, sunbathing zombie. And there's a, a very nice, um, very simple but effective conversion by Bruce Sigrist. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, mate. Uh, it's a, it's an orc who was afraid of the sun and it turned out he was right because he is melting away in a puddle for no apparent reason. But uh, yeah, I uh, really love the idea that he put out there. So for the next paint challenge, the one for September, uh, I was recently talking to Nathan uh, before one of our episodes. We usually have some some unrelated banter. And it turns out that we uh, both love a certain classic 80s show called The A-Team. So I thought, why not allow others to share their love of Face Hannibal B.A.M. Murdoch 2. So the paint challenge for this month, the next month, the team will be The A-Team. Uh, of course, you don't need to portray any characters from this show. The A-Team is just... As far as I know, a military term for the, the first or the best team. You can easily give this your own spin. The, the best uh, grot in your force. The one that you turn to when all else fails. A warlock engineer building a fully functioning warpstone tank out of a destroyed chariot and two discarded tuna cans. Something like that. You don't even need to have a full team as for this challenge as for any challenge. A single miniature will do. We will, however, love to see it when your creations come together. Let's go on to the main topic of the show. In the previous episode, we discussed the city of Nan. We discussed gunpowder weapons and the engineers that could use them. And these are the handheld gunpowder weapons. Now, if your engineer doesn't fire his own weapon, his uh, Hogland long rifle or his repeater handgun, he can also use his ability to improve the shot of a war machine. Empire armies are of course famous for their great cannons, mortars, volley guns and rocket batteries. So let's take a closer look at those units today. As we did with the last episode we will start in 3rd edition and that will require some bookkeeping if you play 3rd edition. Let me however first read this small excerpt from the 8th edition army book about Empire Great Cannons. The Great Cannons of the Imperial Gunnery School are the terror of the Emperor's foes. Their thunderous fire sends iron balls hammering into the ranks of enemy warriors, each impact plowing bloody furrows through tightly packed regiments. Even the mightiest creatures cannot ignore the power of a great cannon, as was ably demonstrated at the Siege of Middenheim, when Master Gunner Pumhart von Steyr decapitated a rampaging dragon with a single well-placed shot. There you have it, cannon sniping is allowed in the rules. Or at least in the fluff. 
there are some more things in this piece that I think do not cover the situation on the battlefield uh, very well. The plowing of bloody furrows only happens uh, so often in a battle. But uh, still it's nice to see when your cannonballs actually hit. Now in 3rd edition you had several types of cannons. And their range and strength were determined by their number of crew. A 3-man cannon had a range of 48 inches, it shot at a strength of 7 and it had a minus 3 save modifier. And for each extra crewman, not that you could buy extra crewman, but if you have like a 4-gun um, a 4-man gun or a 5-man gun, you can go all the way up to 6. And for each increment, the range increases by 12 inches up to a maximum of 84 inches. The strength is increased by 1 up to 10 in total. And the save modifier is increased or decreased, whichever way you want to count it. Uh, also by 1 per tier up to minus 6. And the number of wounds per hit also varies. For a 3-man cannon, it does d4 wounds. For a 4-man cannon, d4 plus 1. 2d4 for a 5-man cannon. And 2d4 plus 1 for a 6-man cannon. Apart from these, you also had Jezils, which were operated by two people, but only certain armies could use them. These had a range of 36 inches, hit with a strength of 6, and had a minus 2 save modifier. And they cost one wound per hit, so they do fit in that same neat tiers row where each extra crew member adds uh, range, strength, and, and extra hits. Now, I've I do have to apologize if you have been screaming at your device and, and got maybe a bit hoarse the last time, uh, because in the last episode I said I didn't know if the armor save was also modified by a high strength bonus. I looked it up and in 3rd edition you don't get a save modifier for high strength hits. The save modifier is either, de either denoted as part of the weapon or it is a part of the creature's entry in its bestiary. A cannon in 3rd edition you can turn to fire which is basically what happens with all war machines we are discussing here today. And the cannonball then travels in a straight line hitting everything in its path and it goes through a total maximum of 6 ranks of models. Uh, the shot causes 2 hits per rank and with each increment of 12 inches the strength drops by 1. So if you fire a strength 8 cannon it will cause a strength 8 hit up to 12 inches, strength 7 hits from 12 to 24, strength 6 from 24 to 36 etc until it reaches its maximum range which is in this case 60 inches. Every turn a cannon fires after the first it gains one heat point and every turn a cannon doesn't fire it loses one. Now if your cannon has any heat points you must roll a d6 before firing. If you have more than one heat point you must add plus one for each extra point so I guess that means that each heat point beyond the first. If the total on your die is 6 or more, the cannon blows up, is destroyed and causes an automatic hit on each crew member. Cannons can also damage terrain in this edition. Uh, it can shoot through a hedge, it will automatically leave a 2 inch gap. 
but that takes away its strength a little bit and shooting through a hedge counts as shooting through two ranks of troops. It can do the same for a low wall but then it will count as four ranks and only destroys the wall on a four plus. And there are some rules for when you are shooting up a hill then you can hit any troops that are up until the top of the hill but not anything beyond that. Um, if you have a, if you sh if you do that, if you shoot at uh, an elevated position, then each rank that you hit counts as two ranks. So the cannon will lose its, the cannonball will, I should say, will lose its energy much quicker. If the cannon itself is on a hill, it can either fire down at troops below, or it can fire at troops on another hill, but not both, of course. And this is all common sense here. If you're firing down from a hill through walls or hedges. These only count as 1 and 2 ranks respectively, because I guess you get a little bit of extra momentum due to gravity working in your favor here. You can also shoot through woods with the cannon, but each inch of wood counts as 2 ranks. And you can also damage buildings, high walls and fortification. You can't penetrate them, but they can be damaged and the rules for that are in the section for buildings. Which I thought went a little bit too far to look up for just the entry on cannons in the Empire Army, which is basically what we are talking about. Now in 3rd edition, if your cannon is attacked, you are allowed to spike it. If you do so, you can't shoot at the chargers and you cannot flee. And a cannon is spiked and that means that it is rendered useless on a roll of 2 plus on a d6. The spikes may not be removed during the course of the battle and this is important because captured engines can be destroyed, moved or even used by the enemy if they have troops with the skill to do so. Should a crew member be lost then it would take you one extra turn to fire for each crewman lost beyond the first. So if you lose one crew the cannon can fire each turn as normal. If you lose two crew, the cannon may only fire once every other turn. If you lose three crew, it may only fire every third turn and so on. Contrary to all the other war machines in the third edition book that I could find in this entry, the costs and points for cannons aren't included here in the rulebook. However, I had to uh, look at the armies, uh, Warhammer Armies book for third edition and there it says that the empire can include a cannon or to be more specific they can include a Reichskanone batterien which i hope i pronounced correctly my german isn't that good uh, of consisting of one to three cannons and they cost 60 points a pop including crew oddly enough the cannon was the only artillery piece the empire could have in third edition now in 4th and 5th edition, the rules for cannons thankfully get a lot simpler in many ways. And these rules have remained unchanged in the bases since then. As with many things in the two Hero Hammer editions, the rule for cannons remain unchanged between 4th and 5th edition. You guess a range and then roll an artillery die. If you roll a number, that number will be the place where the cannonball hits the ground. So that plus your guess will be the distance the cannonball travels. Then you roll another artillery die. That will be the number of inches the cannonball tra travels onwards, uh, the cannonball bounces. And everything under this last path will be hit. 
If you roll a misfire on the second die, the cannonball doesn't bounce, it only hits the ground, and, and if it comes down upon a model, it only hits that model. And if you roll a misfire on the first artillery die, you then roll a d6 and consult the misfire table. On a roll of a 1-2-2, the cannon is destroyed and all the crew are lost. On a 3-4, to four, the powder doesn't ignite and it takes the crew a turn to unload the cannon and to prep it for the next one, so it may not shoot this turn and the next. And if you roll a 5 or 6, there is a minor fault, such as the fuse is not being properly set. The cannon may not shoot this round, but it is otherwise unharmed and may shoot again in the next round. In 4th and 5th edition, you had a regular cannon with a maximum gas range of 48 inches, and you could still add an artillery die to that. Uh, it was strength 10 and it caused d4 wounds. You also had a great cannon, which is the one that the Empire can use, with a maximum gas range of up to 60 inches. Also at strength 10, and each wound causes d6 wounds. Both of these variations didn't allow for any armor saves, and both cannons were toughness 7 and 3 wounds. This is true for all the war machines we are discussing here for all the future editions, uh, except maybe the Hero Hammer ones. I couldn't find the toughness and wounds for the war machines in there. I might, might have overlooked it. But in uh, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th edition, all the Empire artillery pieces are toughness 7, 3 wounds. Now in Hero Hammer, if you lose one crewman, the cannon could still fire as normal. But if you lose two or more, uh, it can only fire once every other turn. And that's assuming you still have crew, of course. And these usually came with three crew members, and that's also the case for all the Empire artillery pieces. There were a few minor changes between 5th and 6th edition for cannons. They still worked exactly the same, but for a few differences. And one is that in 6th edition it specifically states that only one model per rank is hit. So no longer is it just the models that lie in its path. This is I guess a different way of saying the same thing, but it does raise the question of what happens when you shoot in the flank of a unit, since technically the cannonball then counts files and not ranks, or what happens when you hit the unit at an angle, since a cannon is classified in an FAQ later as a template weapon, whose template is a line. So it would be possible, theoretically, to hit multiple models of the same rank using that description. Uh, this was later clarified in 7th edition, uh, and I think that's the way you should also play it in 6th edition, that if you hit it in the flank of a unit, then you count the number of files as if they were ranks, and if you shoot at an angle, then you simply count uh, one model per rank that lies along the line of the cannonball, and in practice this doesn't really make any difference, because... Uh, you still remove the models only from the from the back rank anyway. I think in this case uh, the spirit of the rules outweighs the latter here. Uh, we all know how GW wanted us to play this, especially when 7th edition came around and they clarified this. Now apart from this little technical legalistic deviation, there are only three changes I could find compared to the Hero Hammer era rules. The first is that small cannons now do d3 wounds instead of d4. 
it makes it a little bit easier because you no longer need the any dice other than the d6s and the scatter and artillery dice but it also makes them a little bit less um, useful against multi-wound creatures the second difference is that the misfire table has gotten a bit more generous 4 to 6 is now may not shoot 2 to 3 is malfunction so it can only shoot um, not next turn but the turn after that and uh, only on a 1 is the cannon now destroyed and the last difference is that the cannon now has an extra firing option which is a grape shot this means you load the cannon up with shrapnel and you put down the flame template at the front of the gun. All models under or graced by the template suffer a strength 4 hit with the uh, extra save modifier, so strength 4 armor piercing basically. Like I said in 7th edition, that little bit of legalistic ranting I was just about has been cleared up. Uh, simply every model that lies under the path of the bounce up to 1 per rank. Or if you hit in the flank, then you count the um, the files as if they were ranks. The only thing that really changes compared to 6th edition is the grape shot rule. In this edition, you need to roll the artillery dice. If you roll a misfire, you consult the misfire table, which remains unchanged. And if you roll a number, that will be the strength of the shot. You still use the flame template, but now all models partially covered are hit on a 4+, and all models fully under it are just hit automatically. The shot is still armor piercing, but in this edition each unsaved wound causes d3 wounds, instead of just the single wound you got for a grape shot in 6th edition. The biggest change for the way cannons work since 3rd edition comes unsurprisingly in 8th edition. You now no longer have to guess range, so you just uh, point and click where you want your cannonball to hit, and then you still add the artillery dice. You still only hit one model per rank, but if you shoot at monstrous infantry, monstrous beasts, or monstrous cavalry, you have to work out the wounds first, and if the model is not slain, then it is assumed the cannonball stops. If the cannonball hits an obstacle, uh, that obstacle is destroyed, but the cannonball travels no further. So obstacles and, and large things could get in the way of cannonball, especially uh, if these beasts survive and you don't roll enough wounds on your um, on your wounded hits, then your beastie will. I don't know, add the cannonball away, I guess, or maybe an ogre will catch it uh, in his gut plate and the cannonball just doesn't travel any further and causes no more damage. Another change is that the misfire table that we lost, last saw in Hero Hammer has made its return. Cannons are now destroyed on a 1 to 2, they malfunction on a 3 to 4 and they may not shoot on a 5 and 6. The rules for grape shots are also changed yet again. It is now no longer a template attack but a normal shooting attack with a maximum range of 12 inches. You pick a target within the maximum range and you roll an artillery die. If you roll a misfire you consult the uh, misfire chart in the rulebook and if you don't the number showing is the number of strength 3 armor piercing hits you do. One final minor change is that regular cannons now also do d6 wounds instead of d3. 
Otherwise, the profile for regular cannons and great cannons have remained the same unchanged from 4th edition onwards. Throughout the edition, Empire has had access to great cannons. In 4th edition, they cost 95 points each. They are under the War Machine section of your army book, which you could take 25% of. So 25% of your army total maximum could consist of War Machines. In 6th edition and 7th edition, they are both 100 points each. They are a special choice and they can be accompanied by a Master Engineer as we mentioned in the last episode. And in 8th edition, their points cost is increased to 120. Then we get to the Empire-only artillery pieces, the first of which is the Mortar. Let's turn to the 8th edition army book once again. Mortars are short, heavy weapons designed to lob a hollow explosive shell high into the air so that it drops onto its target. While a solid cannonball may plow through several victims, a mortar shell explodes with tremendous force, scattering razor-sharp shrapnel over a wide area and scything through whole ranks of enemy warriors. Firing a mortar is always a tense moment, for the quality of fuses is highly variable and it is not unknown for one to burn through before the crew has finished loading the shell. As a result, mortar crews tend to be superstitious and carry a large number of good luck charms about their person. I think this should go for all war machine crews in the uh, Warhammer world. But uh, yeah, I can imagine for mortars that being specifically the case. Now, in 3rd edition, the profiles for different types of mortar, yes, mortars are around in 3rd edition, they scale in a similar way as what happens with the cannon. A 2 crew mortar has a range of between 16 to 36 inches. It uses a 1 inch radius template, has a strength of 6 with a minus 2 save modifier and it does d4 hits. The 3 crew mortar is exactly the same except that it has a strength of 7. The 4 crew mortar increases the strength to 8, the save modifier to minus 3 and the wounds to d4 plus 1. It has a maximum range increased to 48 inches. And it also uses a bigger template, a one and a half inch template. In the last two iterations, they have five and six crew. These have a respective range of 20 to 60 and 24 to 72 inches. Their strengths are nine and 10 respectively. They have a minus four and minus five save modifier respectively. And they do 2d4 and 2d4 plus one wounds per hit. They both use a 2-inch round template. To fire a mortar, you select a target in the front 90-degree arc and within range and then you roll a d20, just as with the grenades from the last episode. On a 20, something goes wrong and you roll a d6 to see what happens. If that d6 comes up a 1, the shell fails to explode and instead you put the template... Um, Instead of a template, sorry, you do just one strength 3 automatic hit on the target. So you basically just get a cannonball on your head. On A2, the shell does not explode and it does no damage, but the fuse is still lit. And at the beginning of each player turn, you roll a d6. 
Should that one come up a 6, the shell explodes after all. If you roll a 3 on the misfire table, uh, let's call it that, it's not, not called misfire table officially, but uh, it, that is basically what it is. If you roll a 3, the shot explodes above the target and it showers down shrapnel, so it, has, uh, it hits as intended, but the strength is reduced by 3. So if you have a strength 6 mortar, it now only does uh, strength 3 hits. On a roll of a 4, the shot explodes midair and it does nothing. On a 5, the shell doesn't leave the muzzle and it will explode on a 6 at the start of a player turn. Um, so every player turn, like the, the, the result of a 2 on the misfire table, you roll a d6 and on a 6, it um, the shell explodes after all. I don't know how this would work if you could then take out the shell or, or move away from the mortar and just reload it and reset it. Uh, I didn't find anything about that, but um, yeah, you're basically just sitting on a time bomb then. And if you roll a 6 on the misfire chart, the mortar blows up straight away. Now, assuming you don't roll a 20, but a 13 to 19, the shell hits on target. And if you roll a 1 to 12, the shell deviates in the direction um, as if it were a clock face, 12 being straight forward, straight ahead, and 6 being back towards the mortar. This deviation, uh, I couldn't find it in the relevant piece, but I found later on in a different piece, a uh, different section, uh, this deviation is 2d6 inches. Then, when you have the final location of the template, all models whose bases lie wholly or partially under the template take a single hit. And just as with cannons in 3rd edition, you keep track of the number of hit points. Just like cannons, mortars can be spiked in combat, and the only extra rule they have is one that they share with stone throwers, which is speculative fire. You can fire at a target that is not directly visible, you nominate your target and you roll double the deviation, which is here noted as 2d12 instead of 2d6, so that's why I get that the normal deviation would be 2d6 inches. And I guess you also have to roll another d12 for the direction. The shot will always, uh, even if it comes back to you, always stay more than 4 inches away from the mortar, no matter how much it deviates. You then place the template and work out damage as normal, except if you roll a double on your 2d12 for deviation. Then you consult the misfire table just as if you had rolled a 20 on a regular mortar shot. The point costs for mortars are 10 for a 2 crew mortar and each additional crew member you pay 5 point extra up to 30 points for a 6 crew machine. Uh, these, are, I don't know how this works in 3rd edition with these points cost, but this does seem rather cheap for what it does. So, um, yeah, I think uh, if I could use mortars, I would definitely take uh, more than one if I was allowed to, because they are so cheap. Even if they blow up, then you still will probably make your points back. In 4th edition, you would use a mortar as you would a stone thrower. You guess a range somewhere between 12 and 48 inches, and then you place a 3 inch missile template over there. You roll a scatter and artillery die, 
If you roll a hit, the shell lands on target. If you roll a number and an arrow, the missile deviates that many inches in the indicated direction. And finally, if you roll a misfire, you get to roll on the misfire chart. Goody goody. 1 to 2 is boom, which speaks for itself. 3 to 4 means that the fuse fizzles out and you cannot fire this turn or the next. And 5 to 6 means the shell explodes in midair and your shot has no effect. Now assuming you didn't misfire, you then determine the number of hits. A single model directly under the center hole is automatically hit and all other models with their bases at least half under the template are hit on a 4+. Mortars are strength 7 and cause d3 wounds. And like with cannons, uh, the loss of a single crew means the mortar can still fire every turn, but the loss of two crewmen Thus having only one crew remaining means it can fire only every other turn. In 4th edition, uh, a mortar would cost you 100 points on the dot. Now like cannons, mortars remain mostly unchanged in the way they operate, though some details will change between 4th and 6th, but not between 6th and 7th edition. So a mortar in 6th and 7th edition is exactly the same. I will group these two editions together. It now uses the 5 inch round template. Any model under the template is hit by a strength 3 armor piercing hit. And a model under the center hole gains a strength 6 hit with no armor save that causes d3 wounds. Like cannons in 6th and 7th edition, the misfire chart is now boom on a 1. May not shoot this turn and the next on a 2 and 3. And no effect on a 4 to 6. Mortars in 6th and 7th edition are a special choice and they cost you only 75 points in these editions. In 8th edition the mortar is back up to 100 points and it is classified as a stone thrower. It works exactly the same as a regular stone thrower in the 8th edition rulebook, which is that you select a spot, roll scatter and artillery die. The range is still 12 to 48 inches, uh, that hasn't changed since 4th edition. The mortar still uses the large round template unlike stone throwers and it also uses the black powder misfire chart which is the same as for cannons. 1 to 2 is destroys, 3 to 4 malfunction and 5 to 6 may not shoot. Mortars are now strength six, uh, sorry, strength 2 under the template and uh, strength 6 under the central hole. But all hits are now armor piercing and cause d3 wounds. We will see the indirect fire rule from 3rd edition return, uh, that's a rule for stone throws in general. If you shoot at a target that you cannot see, it scatters as normal. But if you roll a hit, the scatter, uh, it will still scatter and it becomes the number on the artillery die minus the crew's ballistic skill. And that goes in the direction of the small arrow that is included on the hit symbol. And of course, if you get a negative number, if you say you have a ballistic skill of 3 and you roll a 2, then it uh, the shell still hits exactly on target. And now it's time for us to raise some hell. With the Hell Blaster Volley Gun and the Hellstorm Rocket Battery. The Hellblaster Volley Gun is one of the most infamous black powder weapons ever invented. Its devastating firepower able to tear apart an entire regiment in a crackling volley of ear-splitting reports. The Hellblaster Volley Gun is the lethal creation 
of the deranged engineer von Meinkopt, and the terrifying reputation of this weapon has spread to all corners of the old world. Its nine separate barrels are divided into three decks which are turned by means of a central crank, which means that it can unleash devastating hills of shot that shred its unfortunate targets in a firestorm of leaden death. The serious disadvantage of the Hellblaster is that it is notoriously prone to jams, misfires and explosive malfunctions. As a result, Hellblaster crews are a morbid lot who tend to be paid up with the priests of more. So if you really have a dead wish, you join the Hellblaster crew. The definitely most iconic of the Empire artillery pieces, the Hellblaster Vodigun. In a way, this also finds its origins in 3rd edition. Uh, I say in a way because the Hellblaster uh, was not named that in 3rd edition, but you could take something called organ guns. These have three or more barrels, all barrels are fired at once, and only a single barrel can subsequently be reloaded per turn. But you can shoot uh, before all are fully reloaded. So if you spend two turns reloading, and then you can spend a turn shooting, you will only fire two shots, even if you have uh, three or more crew members or three or more barrels. Uh, organ guns have three crew, uh, which is the uh, standard, like I mentioned, for all Empire artillery pieces in 4th uh, edition and later. Um, their range for the organ guns is 36 inches and their strength is 5 minus 1 for each increment of 12 inches. So from 12 to 24 inches you are at strength 4 and from 24 to 36 you are at strength 3. The safe modifier is a minus 3 at any range, and each hit causes d3 wounds. You pay 60 points for a, uh, for a organ gun, and you can buy extra barrels for 20 points per barrel. To shoot an organ gun, you simply pivot it and fire like you would a cannon. The first unit in its part takes one automatic hit per barrel per rank, That's just like regular cannons. Um, in 3rd edition, 6 ranks in total can be hit before the projectile loses its energy. Because these barrels take so long to load, you don't have to worry about overheating. So basically, you trade out the heat point bookkeeping for the loaded barrels bookkeeping. Terrain works in the same way as it does for cannons, and just like cannons and mortars in 3rd edition, you can also spike this gun if you fear that the enemy might uh, come close and uh, take it away from you, you roll a d6 minus 1 and that result is the number of spiked barrels. So on a 1 the spiking attempt fails as is regular and on a 2 only a single barrel is spiked etc. If you know a little bit about the how the volley gun works in 4th edition you might see why I decided to start with the 3rd edition organ gun. Hellblaster volley guns in 4th edition have a range of 24 inches they have 9 barrels, which means 9 shots, and that's what they get for the entire battle. These barrels are loaded before the battle, and once a barrel is fired, it, um, it can't be fired again. So if you fire all 9 shots, then the volley gun is from then on useless. To fire, you nominate a target, and then you roll an artillery dice. And 
if you want to after this uh, first shot you can fire another barrel you can do that as do this as long as you want to uh, or until you roll a misfire the number of hits that you get is the number uh, that you number of shots that you do if the target is within half range so within 12 inches and if the target is beyond 12 inches the number of the artillery die is half so if you roll it then you only cause five hits when you have decided that you caused enough hits you tally up the number and you resolve them at short range the strength of the gun is five and at long range the strength is four now if you are unfortunate enough to go a misfire the gun jams, the barrel doesn't fire, and you cannot fire any more shots for the rest of the game, which is quite a punishment for a gun that will set you back 100 points. However, if your very first roll of the game with the Hellblaster is a misfire, then something spectacularly goes wrong, uh, something goes spectacularly wrong probably, and all nine barrels fire at once so you roll nine artillery die and any further misfires are just uh, disc discarded these are counted as misses uh, the volley gun to quote the army book is burst apart and his crew blasted to pieces please gw paint me a word picture here you can see why these guys are paid up with priests of more as usual, the volley gun has toughness 7 and 3 wounds, and it can operate with 2 crewmen as normal, but only once every other turn with only a single crewman. In 6th edition, the Hellblaster works a bit differently, uh, though many things remain the same. You now each turn fire a set of 3 barrels, and like I read out in the little fluff piece from the 8th edition army book, these barrels then rotate, uh, they can cool down while the next set is being prepped and the third set is ready to fire. The range of the volley gun is still 24 inches and the strength is still 5 uh, at long range and 4 at short range. But the gun is now also armor piercing. To shoot a Hellblaster you roll an artillery die 3 times in a row. You add up the numbers and that's the total amount of shots you get at close range or if you fire at long range you halve the number and that's the number of shots you get at long range just as it was in 4th edition. However as soon as a single artillery die comes up a misfire you must immediately roll a d6 and consult a misfire chart before any further barrels are shot in this deck. On a roll of 1 to 2 the gun is destroyed. On a roll of a 3 there is a malfunction and any remaining shots in this group of 3 barrels are wasted and all of the next turn the gun can't shoot either. On a roll of a 4 the fire mechanism jams and the barrel does not fire nor do any remaining barrels but you can still shoot in the next turn. On a roll of a 5 the powder for this specific barrel fails to ignite but you can still continue shooting if you have any barrels remaining in this deck. And on a 6 you get the result KABOOM in all caps with an exclamation mark. This barrel and all remaining barrels score 10 hits or uh, 5 at long range. And you can shoot as normal in the next turn. In 6th edition Hellblasters were a rare choice and they set you back 125 points. Things change slightly 
again in 7th edition. The Hellblaster is now strength 5 armor piercing and all of its at all of its 24 inch range. And it always fires the full artillery dice, so you don't have to worry about long range and short range anymore. The firing of the volley gun still works the same as it did in 6th edition, but the misfire chart is slightly changed. On the roll of a 1, the volley gun is destroyed. On a 2 to 3, it may not shoot in this turn or the next, and the results 4 to 6 remain as they were in 6th edition. Volleygun is still a rare unit, but now it costs only 110 points, despite having gotten better at long range and having a better or at least more forgiving misfire chart, so I guess even 7th edition can do stuff right sometimes. The Volleygun's final iteration is in 8th edition. The stats remain the same as in 7th, but now it no longer has its own misfire table. What you instead do is you uh, roll 3 artillery dice and you count the number of misfires. If you roll 1 misfire, all remaining artillery dice rolls are halved. If you roll 2 misfires, you have to consult the black powder misfire chart in the rulebook, which means 1 to 2 destroyed, 3 to 4 may not shoot this turn or the next, and 5 to 6 may not shoot this turn. And if you roll uh, three misfires in a row, which for the um, Mad Hammerers amongst you is a 1 in 216 chance, all barrels fire simultaneously. You get 30 shots, uh, but the Hellblaster is then removed as a casualty. Hellblasters in this edition remain a rare choice, but have gone up again in cost slightly to 120 points. Now the final piece of Empire artillery that we are discussing here today is the Hellstorm rocket battery. And for that we will turn to the 7th edition Empire army book because the 8th edition book uh, it does have a similar fluff piece but it is slightly shortened. After watching the spectacular fireworks of a Cathayan emissary to Aldorf, master engineer Hermann Volkstein was inspired to transform this eastern technology into a weapon. His early research blew apart entire laboratories at the College of Engineers while he attempted to discover the secrets of rocket-powered flight. But the permanently soot-blackened engineer never lost faith that his designs had military value. Folkstein's original rockets were wildly inaccurate, madly corkscrewing weapons that had no chance whatsoever of hitting anything other than, eventually, the ground. Further refinements such as fins, long sticks added to the base of the rocket and a launch carriage to direct the early portion of the flight further improved stability and accuracy, though neither were particularly impressive. However, when the rockets did manage to land on target, the results were devastating, with entire enemy regiments blown apart by an earth-shaking cascade of shrieking explosive rockets. After the electric count of Midland was almost blown to smithereens, by an errant volley of rockets, though he was nowhere near the intended target, 
they were dubbed Hellstorm rockets after the colorful language used by the Count on the unfortunate engineer. You can uh, leave it to uh, good old Boris Todbringer to invent a name such as that. The Hellstorm rocket battery first appears in the 7th edition army book and it uh, then reappears in 8th edition. The rocket battery has a range of 12 to 48 inches. It hits with strength 5 and it causes a single wound per hit at the regular minus 2 armor save you get for this strength. The rocket battery fires like uh, both a cannon and a stone throw combined or maybe perhaps better a cannon and a mortar combined. What you do is first you guess the range and then you add the artillery die score in inches assuming it's not a misfire. Then you place the 5 inch template at that location and you roll a scatter and artillery die. If the scatter die is a hit the template lands right over there otherwise it moves by the amount that on the artillery dies in the direction indicated by the scatter die. If this second artillery die is a misfire and you don't have a hit then you have to keep re-rolling until you get a number. The model under the exact center is automatically hit even if its base is not completely covered, which I guess uh, would happen with a 5 inch template only in the case of chariots and large monsters and such. Now if, or uh, more probably and especially with my luck, when you roll a misfire, you get to consult a special misfire chart and I do love special charts for my war machines. On a d6 result of a 1, the entire war machine goes boom. The rocket explodes before it is fired. On the roll of a 2 you get an oops, which is also something you don't want to hear when handling explosive rockets. The rockets spiral out of control and land in the Empire lines. You center the template on the rocket battery and you roll the scatter and artillery die to see where the rockets land. On the roll of a 3 to 4 you get a dud, the fuse fizzles out and the rockets fail to fire. The crew have to spend this turn and the next to replace the rockets. And on the roll of a 5 to 6, you have set too short a fuse, the rockets explode in midair and this shot has no, no effect. Apart from, I guess, some oohs and ahs from the unengaged regiments, even though the army book doesn't specifically say this. Now for this 4th of July war machine, you would pay 115 points and you can include it in your army as a rare choice. In 8th edition, the rocket battery has a range of 48 inches flat out it has no minimum and it has a strength of 3 both under the central hole and under the rest of the template but the shots are now armor piercing. I don't really think that's an improvement though. The way you fire the Halsom rocket battery has changed as well. First you roll a d3 to determine the number of rockets that you get to fire in this salvo. What you do then is you place a small round template under the, uh, over the target using the rules for a stone thrower so it's just if you can see it you can uh, shoot at it and if you can't see it you can I guess still make a uh, an indirect shot. What you do then is you um, you roll a single artillery die and you roll a number of scatter dies equal to the number of rockets. 
Should the artillery die come up a misfire, you have to roll on the plain old boring black powder war machine misfire chart in the rulebook. And if you don't have a misfire, you move the template in the direction of the first scatter die, resolve the hits, then return the template to its original spot, which you should have marked, and resolve the next scatter die if there are any left over until they are all done. I think this is one of the few instances where the rules got more complicated in a later edition. Usually you see rules like uh, overheating in 3rd edition disappear and a little bit of realism disappear as well to avoid unnecessary bookkeeping. But in this case you get d3 small templates instead of a single large one that is definitely going to slow the game down a little bit more than it would uh, otherwise. The Hellstorm rocket battery remains a rare choice in 8th edition and it has slightly gone up in points to 120. We will not go over the other two Empire War Machines in this episode, the Halfling Hotpot, which has gotten its own episode on our YouTube series about lost units, and the Steam Tank, which uh, both of these are technically not gunpowder weapons, and the Steam Tank at least deserves its very own episode. But since we already did two episodes on Empire Things That Go Boom, we will probably put the steam tank off for a later time. I will, however, take you to a special army you could construct in 6th edition, which is the Artillery Train of Nome. As you probably know, in 6th edition, many of the army books had um, specialized armies. So in the Empire army book, you could take, for example, the Emperor's Guard, which uh, consists of more elite troops. You could take a Sigmarite army based around warrior priests and flagellants, a Marienburg mercenary army, the Cult of Ulrich, and a Crusader army. And you also had the Artillery Train of None. The armies of Nan are renowned for relying on mass artillery fire to blow up their enemies to smithereens. Knights disapprove of these tactics and therefore a Grand Master can never be the general of an artillery train from Nan. Your core units are halberdiers, spearmen, swordsmen, handgunners, archers, crossbowmen and free companies. And your core units are also cannons and mortars. However, you must have at least one unit of infantry, and you don't count detachment and flagellants, for every cannon or mortar. So uh, the uh, special choice 0 to 3 and 2000 points is now lifted. Your special units are greatswords 0 to 1 and pistoliers, and for rare units you can choose knightly orders, a 0 to 1 white wolves, a Hellblaster, a 0 to 1 Flagellant, and you can still select Dogs of War, or as they are denoted here, Regiments of Renown. It is also uh, interesting to note that in the, the first of these special Empire armies, the Emperor's Guard, Cannons, Mortars and Hellblasters are listed as special units, so if you want to have a, uh, an Empire Guard army, you can take uh, a lot more Hellblasters, uh, should you be inclined to do so. We will 
leave you today with a short story from the 4th edition Empire Army book, which is about the Volley Gun. I have thought about spending a bit more time in the fluff here. I, I wanted to do that for the last episode about the handheld gunpowder weapons. Unfortunately, that was running a bit long as it was. So I focus mainly on the rules there and I hope I have been able to make that up to you here. So without further ado, let's take a look at this lovely little story from the 4th edition army book. Suddenly, for one brief instant, all was silence. Not even the screams of the wounded and the moans of the dying broke the hush. The roar of cannon halted. No war cry rang out, the whole world held its breath and waited, sensing that the battle had reached a crucial juncture. It was one of those rare moments when the clamor of war receded, the smoke cleared, and a wise man could take stock of the situation quickly, accurately, and with some hope of certainty. The Chevalier Roger de Armagnac twisted in, in the saddle to survey the battlefield. Before him lay a pile of dead Talian crossbowmen, polluting the sacred soil of Britonia with their inferior foreign blood. Their brethren had fled screaming from the battlefield. They were unworthy of pursuit. By all the gods he had showed those peasants scum. How dare they believe that they would stand before the flower of Bretonian chivalry, while well, he had taught them a swift certain lesson that no ten hired lackeys of the Emperor Karl Franz were a match for a single noble son of Bretonia. Ten, a hundred, a thousand. Bring them on, he would kill them all like the true knight that he was. He took a second to raise the visor of his leonine helmet. Gods, how those clods had wailed when they had seen his proud lion-masked visage. There, that was better. Now he could see more clearly. Yes, it was true, the Bretonians were winning, he could tell. True, there were a few pockets of stubborn resistance where the Reichsguard refused to fall back in the face of certain defeat, or where the thunder of imperial arquebuses had shattered the Bretonian infantry. Still, what could you expect? The infantry were peasants, coddled, soft and fat. You simply could not expect them to know how to fight properly. They did not understand the nature of honor or how to win glory in battle. Roger's heart leapt. He could see the imperial banner fluttering on a nearby hilltop. There was nothing to protect it save a company of disreputable rabble and a small strange-looking nine-barreled cannon. Yes, this was his moment. Now he would bring renown to the house of Darmagnac. Bards would sing of this moment for a thousand years. Down the generations his tale would be told of how Sir Roger had led the pride of Bretonia to glorious victory. He spat contemptuously at the thought of the imperial halberdiers. The little imperial bang box held no terrors for him. Such things were typical of the imperial troops. They did not rely on mighty sinews and glittering steel as a true warrior should. They were always looking for some cowardly advantage. 
well, it would do them no good. He turned and waved to his fellows and then gestured towards the hill. His brother knights lined up beside him, ready for the charge. Their great plumed helmets nodded. Here was some of the most renowned chevaliers in all of Bretonia. He recognized the boar's hel head helm of Marcel Dume and the carp helm of Lucien de Noir. The sight of them filled him with pride. It was almost unfair, he thought. Ten true Bretonians versus a mere thirty peasants and their puny gunpowder weapon. Are you sure this is wise, Sir Roger? asked young Sir Edward. I have heard dire rumors of the hellblast of Valigan. Roger cursed loudly. What could you expect from a pup with a mere nine peacock feathers in his eagle helmet's crest? Are you a man or a mouse, boy? Where is your honor? This was too much for young Edward. He dug his spurs into his horse's flanks and without waiting for the others raced towards the hill. With a great cry the knights followed him. Exhilaration filled Roger as he th thundered forward. He dropped his lance into its rest. He had already picked his target. He didn't like the look of that rascal who was touching a taper to the base of the gun. He was grinning and smirking too much by far. It was almost as if the peasant couldn't believe his luck, the cheek of him. Not far now. Soon he would have the imperial standard in his hand. He could picture himself at the court of King Louis, accepting the thanks for his grateful, of his grateful monarch. Suddenly, a great cloud of smoke billowed out from the gun. For a moment it was like being in hell. There were several huge bangs. Bright muzzle flashes were visible even through the murk. The reports echoed deafeningly within his helmet. Clods of earth were thrown up all around him. Shrapnel patted off his shield. The smell of gunpowder filled his nostrils. Something wet and red splashed his face. He licked his lips and tasted the salt tang of someone else's blood. He ducked as something heavy whizzed past his head. Behind him he heard Sir Leon scream in pain. Roger's teeth had and reared and whinnied in terror. How dare they scare the beast like that? He would make them pay. The cloud of smoke dissipated. Roger halted and waited for his fellow knights to form up again. For Bretonia and King Louis, he cried and waited for the response. He glanced swiftly around and was horror-struck. There were no other Bretonians near. They had all gone. What vile magic was this? Surely that gun could not have wreaked this havoc. No, it was evil sorcery. Grinning triumphantly, the Imperial Halberdiers advanced towards him. Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. of mortals has come to an end.